well. Uh, we're going to spend time this week talking about something that's currently very important here in the United States, and that is education, specifically looking at whether schools should reopen this fall or not, and the role that teachers play in students' lives, and also the importance of parents in all of this and the role that they are now playing as both parents and teachers for those parents that are deciding to keep their children at home this fall, of which I happen to be one of them. I had experience this spring keeping my son at home from school due to the pandemic. It was definitely a learning experience, but I am now looking forward to this fall and taking a bit more control of his, of his education. And then hopefully this pandemic gets under control and we can send him back to school and feel comfortable about it starting in the spring. What I decided to do this week's for this week's episode is talk about my master's thesis with you guys and that being James Baldwin as a center of importance to education in this country, ways we can fix the education, but ways just in general that we can become better people using Baldwin and his works. So we're going to spend time today talking about what I have termed a Baldwinian pedagogy and I'm going to give you some background on that, what, where I came up with that, what exactly is a Baldwinian pedagogy, types of things that I use to build a Baldwinian pedagogy, and hopefully by the end of the episode you guys will understand it and see the benefits of it in implementing it in schools, specifically in America, but it's definitely ideas that we can use around the world to try and make the schooling experience better for all children. So we're going to get to that today, right after this short break. So my master's thesis took many forms over a couple of years. It involved many different people. For a while, it was James Baldwin and Prince. For a while, it was James Baldwin and Duke Ellington. For a while, it was James Baldwin and both of Duke Ellington and Prince. For a while, it was James Baldwin and John Coltrane. But what I decided to do in the end was take Baldwin as a thinker, as a writer, and put him up against other great writers and thinkers in black America, specifically with W.E.B. Du Bois. And the works that I really focus on for Baldwin were some works that I've already talked about in previous episodes, mainly The Fire Next Time, because it is such an amazing piece of work and it should be taught to 
everybody, every student, every adult should get a copy of this and read it. And I think they'd have a much better understanding of race in America, religion in America, and how the races interact with one another. So looking back at W.E.B. Du Bois, in his book, The Souls of Black Folks, he said, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And looking back at that, and then studying Baldwin, you know, we still could say that the problem of the 21st century is the color line as well, but I think it's beyond that. I think we understand the color line in this country and the divides that we have. To me, personally, the real problem of the 21st century is and will continue to be that of the white mind. So as we've said in the past, the reason why we have these boxes of white and black is white folks in power, specifically in the South, needed to have a separation between the races to show that whites were superior to blacks. So if we keep that in mind, if we look at what is considered the white mind, white males, those in power, even white females that have power or don't do anything about the problems that they see, this white mind and ideology is such a problem that we really need to get at the root and figure out how to change things. As Baldwin observed, white is not simply or even meaningfully a skin color. Rather, it is a social position and an attitude toward experience. And that really sums up growing up white is literally an entirely different world compared to growing up black. The experiences are so fundamentally different. What a black child experiences compared to what a white white child, even a poor white child experiences is so different from what a black child experiences, both within one's family, within a neighborhood, within a city or state or even the country. See, then you begin to look at Baldwin's words, whether it's in a fire next time or a talk to teachers or the uses of the blues, which those last two are the other two main pieces of work that I use, that I did use along with the fire next time for my master's thesis. If you look at real life situations, both individually and as a society, we can begin to re-educate people in this country at a fundamental level and make long-lasting, sustainable change in the ways that whites and people of color interact, learn, and understand one another. What it basically comes down to is a real strong focus on humanities. And I'm not trying to discount any of the you know, STEM classes, whether it's science or math. Those are great. Those are important. Those 
for those that are interested in those areas, they get a wonderful education and knowledge of how to apply those in the real world. But it's these humanities courses, social studies, political science, any cultural classes, any classes that deal with people that are, mi are minorities in this country. Those classes are the classes that teach us to have empathy, to try and better understand one another and look outside of ourselves and look at the world as something bigger than just ourselves because it's much bigger than just any one person. So throughout his career, Baldwin wrestled with questions that society was struggling to answer. And many times these questions that society was even unwilling to acknowledge, whether it's questions about the past and slavery or reconciliation with our past or even during the civil rights movement and black Americans trying to get basic civil rights. And these ideas are embedded into our children at such a young age. Baldwin said in A Talk to Teachers, it would seem to me that when a child is born, if I'm the child's parents, it is my obligation and my high duty to civilize that child. And it's civilizing that child through a liberal arts foundation that are so greatly lacking in America today. We can't look at what we're teaching our children and truthfully feel that they are getting the education that they need and that they deserve to prepare them as adults in this country. John Oliver did a great piece two weeks ago now about education in America and how really poor it is, how poor it is that our, our own history is taught to children and how we use language to soften the realities of history, specifically looking at the Civil War and slavery and then what was done in the Civil Rights Movement. He went on to say in the talk to teachers that as adults, we are easily fooled because we are so anxious to be fooled. But children are very different. Children are children not yet aware that it is dangerous to look too deeply at anything, look at everything, look at each other, and draw their own conclusions. The greatest example I have for this is my own son. It was very important for my wife and I to have him go to a daycare that was very diverse. And when my family first moved to Madison for graduate school, we brought him to a daycare that was all white. And the curriculum was great. And the teachers were wonderful. But he wasn't getting any sort of diversity. All he was seeing was children that looked like him. And with me pursuing a master's in African-American culture and society and education, I couldn't stand by and accept this. So we enrolled him in a school that was 99% children of color, black children. 
and he was actually the first white children child at the school and we didn't do this looking for recognition because so many parents came up to us and said oh it's great that you're having your son go to this school we did it because it was important to us that he grow up and realize that throughout his life as things begin to change he's going to see more people that don't look like him than do. And by doing this at such a young age, we show him the diversity in the world and he becomes comfortable with that. So much so that when his school was on a summer break and we would take him to parks in the city to play, he would gravitate towards children of color so whether it was black children or native children he would gravitate towards them and want to play with them before going to ask white children if he wanted to play with them or if he could play with them and it really showed us that immersing him in this diverse environment really took away some of the stigmas that most children growing up get embedded into them about race and how to stay away from children that don't look like you. And that's never been the case for him because he was just so used to seeing people that didn't look like him. He was already comfortable around them. And it really made us proud as parents to see that he was willing to bypass the superficial looks when it came to wanting to make new friends and he just, he saw boys and girls playing and that's who he wanted to play with. And it did not matter that they didn't look like him. So what I'm going to do in the second half of today's show is specifically talk about a Baldwinian pedagogy. And we'll get into that a little more right after this break. All right, so what is a Baldwinian pedagogy? Baldwinian pedagogy uses the works of James Baldwin as a way to both educate and better understand the relationship between blacks and whites in America. Most studies or books about Baldwin focus on one aspect of his writing, whether it be politics, relationships, sexuality, or something else. The problem with this way of looking at Baldwin is that it gives you a very incomplete picture of him. Baldwin's thinking and writing was both complex and multi-layered. To best understand him and make use of his work, we have to unravel all the layers and view his complexity as something positive that allows us to answer complex questions you're not going to get an easy answer from a complex question. You're only going to get complex answers. And sometimes in looking at Baldwin, you try and answer a complex question. It's only going to lead you to more questions and you're just not going to get any question or any answers for quite a while. So in understanding Baldwin, there are specific ideas and notions that are foundational to understanding him. Once these ideas are understood and 
you have to always keep them in, in mind as you're reading or researching about him. You can begin to tackle specific topics that Baldwin wrote or spoke about. Each of these are fundamental when exploring the topics Baldwin struggled with and tried to answer. So there are three main ideas in looking at Baldwin that you you have to fully be aware of and really have a good grasp on before you even get into looking at any of his work. The first one is religion. And we've talked about this in past episodes with Baldwin being a boyhood preacher and the importance of the church to him, not only as a child, but throughout his entire life. We know that he eventually left the church, but the sacredness of the lessons that he learned from the church were with him until the day he died. The second main idea that you have to remember is music. And again, this is something we've talked about in past episodes, and we're going to really focus on more in upcoming episodes. Although Baldwin wasn't a musician, music was still an integral part of his writing and his worldview. Music helped him make connections in his own mind that would allow him to answer questions he was struggling with. And we're going to see as we go through the coming weeks, and this was part of the reason why I wanted to have songs of the week for each episode, was either songs that Baldwin would have listened to or for the more contemporary songs, songs that you could see that would have had an impact on Baldwin and would have helped him get deep into thought and try and answer some of these complex questions he was dealing with. The last main idea that you have to know about Baldwin is how close and how powerful Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were for Baldwin. Each was a close friend of Baldwin. And as we learn in school, each had very differing ideas about how to obtain racial equality in this country. Although by the time each of them died, their idea are their ideas were much closer than many people thought. And it's important that we combine the ideas of King and Malcolm because you have the violence of the rhetoric of Malcolm X along with the tender loving heart of Dr. King. They don't work effectively without one another. Malcolm's ideology by itself is pure violence, and that leads to nothing but chaos and anarchy. Martin's ideology by itself cannot exist in America, but only in some sort of fairy tale where whites view blacks as equal. And we saw that if you just try to combat Malcolm's idea with violence, you're just going to be out-violenced by white power structures in this country. And although Martin did have success, and we've talked in past episodes about the success of Congressman John Lewis, that he had using love as a central tenet of his work, 
you saw the br brutality and violence rain down upon them as well. So it's really this idea of having an open heart and an open mind towards whites and try and get white people to have that same openness in return, but also have blacks standing up for one another. And you're seeing that today in all the protests around the country that people are sick of the status quo and they want change. And now what's really different with these protests compared to protests of the last few years is you have a large amount of non-black people that have joined in the protest and are standing up to the white power structures and saying, you know what? Enough's enough. We do need change. So I want you to imagine, if you can, a set of bubbles. And the main bubble in the middle is James Baldwin. And surrounding him are six bubbles that are not only connected to him, but connected to each other as well. And I'm going to briefly get into those bubbles as the main ideas of a Baldwinian pedagogy. So this first bubble is talking about identity. Who am I? What does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be white in America? What does it mean to be black in America? Why do whites let go of certain parts of their past saying maybe, well, I wasn't here. My ancestors weren't here for the Civil War, so you can't blame me for that but they cling so tightly to other parts of their ancestry and they're so proud to say my ancestors were Irish or my ancestors were Italian or German or French. One of the main questions we have to figure out as a society is what are white people so afraid of that they have put up these racial categories to divide us, to put black folks, Native Americans, Asians, Latinos into these categories that are viewed as less than white. Why have we done that? What are white people so afraid of to confront, to take those barriers away and just see everybody as equal? And to go along with that, why do white people think of equality meaning that they lose something. It's not that white people lose anything when folks are seeking, seeking equality. It's that those folks are seeking to have the same that whites already have. And does equality mean specialness? Is there specialness in equality or do we lose that if everybody is seen as equal? The next bubble I want you to think about is religion and what I've called the sacred. And some of the questions to think about with this are, what do Americans hold sacred? Is what Americans hold sacred different depending on race and class in America? Is whiteness the most sacred thing of all in this country? I think if you sit and think about it for a while, you'll find that whiteness is held on to tighter than anything else 
in this country and people are so willing to give up whiteness for fear of what that might mean for them. What role does the church and religion play in oppression in this country, both in the past and modern day? And does the church's hypocrisy on certain issues take away from its value of being sacred? The next bubble, it's a big bubble, but it's an important bubble. It's looking at race relations, intimate relations, love, and reconciliation. So with that, we're looking at the relationships between black men and women, black men and white women, white men and black women, white men, white women, black man, white man, black woman, white women and how all of those are interconnected to our past of slavery and how those relationships were formed and really solidified then and has allowed them to carry on to this day. And then we look at the use of pronouns and what they meant to Baldwin. And that is also something we'll get into in future episodes, specifically when Dr. Ed Pavlik will be a guest on the show and we'll talk about that. And then we look at love, how to love one's own self and love another, how to face our history, but not be trapped in it. So often, so many people want to say, well, that was then, that's the past, let it lie there, let it stay there. We can't do that. We need to examine our past and study it and realize the wrongs that were done, but also realize we need to make changes from that, but not get trapped so inside of it that we also ignore the problems of today. And then we have to look at what white people must do to face this versus what black people must do. The next bubble, it's another big bubble. It's time and space, past versus present, the future, activism and getting the message out we have to remember that history isn't just the past history is a continuum history is right now as well as the past i look at a group like the black panthers and the activism that they tried to use to better their communities yet they were vilified by the fbi and the fbi built up cointelpro as a program to bring down the pan the Panthers. And then you look at individuals that have used their voices for social and political issues like Colin Kaepernick, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, and probably most famously Muhammad Ali. Ali was willing to give up several years of his boxing prime in order to stand up for what he believed in. And we see the same thing today with Colin Kaepernick. And to go along with that, we see how over time, especially in the civil rights movement, how activists lose their voice, whether it was the murders of Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, or Dr. King. And now you even see Colin Kaepernick Kaepernick's voice being lost due to others trying to push him aside and just hold up these new 
ideologies that are all of a sudden becoming popular that we can all agree on we're almost universally in agreement now that something needs to be done with police in this country whether you want small reforms or large reforms but that's something Colin Kaepernick was saying five years ago and he was shunned from the NFL in his career but now it's something that everybody is universally in agreement on and now his voice is being pushed to the side as if it's not important and his voice is still central to the movement that's going on in this country the next bubble is education how do we teach black history in america so oftentimes we do not teach black history in america and why is the way we do teach it so incomplete so if any black history is taught in America, it's slavery ending, and it's the civil rights movement, and that's it. And that does not at all give any sort of complete picture to the history of blacks in this country. And what we need to do is have white people receive a re-education on black history and culture in this country. So they understand what black folks have gone through. And it's not just black folks. It's a re-education on the history of this country in general. So white folks understand what native folks went through, what Chinese immigrants have gone through, what Latino folks have gone through in this country. It's all problematic and it all needs to be addressed in order to get a clear picture of this country's history. The last of the six bubbles is politics. So with that, we look at how our current political rhetoric divides us. And literally every issue is either black or white one way or another. We have lost that gray area where a liberal person might have some conservative views or a conservative person might have some liberal views. We have cut that middle ground out and we have become so tribal in our thinking that it's divided us more than ever. And if we look at the role of history and the current political climate of how language has been used to divide us, if we go back even 60 years ago to the civil rights movement and you look at the membership of Congress and you had congressmen and women on both sides. You had conservatives that were actually quite progressive in their thinking. But you also had Democrats that were quite conservative in some of their thinking as well. So you had these cross ideologies mixing with one another that allowed us to pass legislation like the Voting Rights Act or the Civil Rights Act of 1965. Like, it's that idea of coming together across the aisle that we've lost in this country, that we so desperately need to get back to in order for us to hope to come together and build foundational laws that we can all agree that are good for everyone. 
So that's just a brief glimpse into what a Baldwinian pedagogy is. It's very complex, and I could literally do a four-hour show on the topic, and it still wouldn't cover everything. But in the interest of time, we're going to stop there, and after this short break, we're going to get to the songs of the week and the quote of the week. All right, real quickly before I get to the songs of the week and the quote of the week, a reminder that you can follow and give the show a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash James Baldwin's America or follow us on Twitter at James underscore Baldwin's. You can email the show with thoughts or questions at baldwins.america at gmail.com. And please remember to rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you happen to be listening on. And please leave a five-star rating. Those are so important to the show. So with this week's Songs of the Week, um, I'm going to go back a couple years for a current song because it is so important, not only at the time it came out, but it's still very relevant and that song is This Is America by Childish Gambino from the album This Is America, released in 2018. And it's a song that pretty much everybody by now knows. But if you watch the music video, I don't think it's lost any of its power that it initially had when it was released. And you see how fragile life in this country is and how we are so easily want to do to disregard the value of life but how we will protect things like guns and we are so careful about our freedoms when it comes to guns or free speech but actual lives have very little value in this country the second song is the first of four parts from John Coltrane's album, A Love Supreme, released in 1965, and that is Acknowledgement. And as I said earlier in today's show, at one time, Baldwin was going to be a co-topic of my thesis along with John Coltrane. And A Love Supreme was going to be foundational to that work. And in many ways, it's still foundational to the work I'm doing today. But a few things to think about when you listen to this song. It begins with a gong, and that's serving as an awakening. But is it serving as an awakening spiritually for Coltrane, who said this was the closest he ever got to God, or is it a societal awakening? Nonetheless, it's a jolt to society to get them back to reality after a rather positive 1964 because 1965 and the years coming after this were very, very hard on the American public and the American public lost so much. A month after this album was released, Malcolm X was assassinated. A couple years after this, Bobby Kennedy would be assassinated. Martin Luther King would be assassinated. Coltrane himself would die from cancer. 
so listening to this song, listen to the fanfare. He's announcing his arrival, saying, this is me. I am a man. I'm a black man. And this is me asserting myself in this world. I'm going to show you where I am, but I'm also going to show you where I want to go with this. And he begins to take the listener on a journey with him. And much like so many musicians, it's not a journey that you have to go on. You need to choose to go on this journey. And if you're willing to go on this journey, it can take you to amazing places, not only in your mind, but in your spirit. And it can really open up your eyes to new ideas and a new way of thinking if you allow to do so. So the song famously ends with Coltrane repeating the phrase a love supreme 36 times with his saxophone. He then vocalizes the same call 19 or 20 times depending on the microphones that picked up the sound. And he was doing this to assert himself again that this love supreme that he was searching for was so key, not only to his life and his existence, but the existence of all of us. And it's putting that idea of love, love yourself, love one another, putting it front and center in all of our relationships. And if we're able to do that, amazing and special things can happen. And I just want to leave you with this idea of Coltrane and his saxophone. He's using that instrument to speak for him. Saying that, this is me. This is who I am. This is the journey I'm on. You're welcome to come on this journey with me. It might not be a journey for you. You might have to go on your own separate journey. But the destination of this journey is love. And God is leading me on this journey. And we can take the Christian God out of it. We can substitute whatever godly figure you want to put in there and let him or her lead you on this destination of love for yourself and for one another. And with that, I'm going to say to you goodbye for this week. I hope you all have a wonderful week. You take care of yourself and each other. I wish you love. I wish you peace. Mm -hmm.